blessing it is to be here together with you. And uh, we give give you a little too much time to talk. You get into life stories and stuff like that, and then you can't turn it off. <laughs> I'm sure a couple of parents will be coming back from downstairs, but what a blessing it is that we have um, men and women who are teaching the kids downstairs. They are the heroes on a Sunday morning because they're they're leading the kids. So if you have kids, please be thanking them. If you don't have kids, please be thanking them because they're doing just a wonderful work. They don't get to be up here during the sermon. Uh, they're down uh, teaching a bunch of brat, uh, kids. And uh, you, <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. They're not brats. Justin, why are you shaking? Why are you doing that? So, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's such, I mean, it's so good. It really is that we have uh, have teachers who are willing to do that. It's a sacrifice, but at the same time, I I don't know about you, but I have memories of of uh, my Sunday school teachers. One being Lois Lathan, who is still at the church in my hometown. She's 80 years old, and she taught me in Sunday school, and I love seeing her on a Sunday morning. And she always reminds me that I'm so awesome because of her. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, you guys saw the advertisements. There's a Galentine thing today, and uh, there's a men's snowshoeing thing later on. Uh, just please notice that. There's the new church app that we're working with. If you don't have that, you'll see the advertisements at the end to download that church app. Then you'll kind of know what's happening, know the information. Such a, a good thing. You'll also be able to sign up for discipleship groups. And I just want to encourage you with the discipleship groups, uh, where you're at, learning the word. Uh, the point of these is to learn and grow, like like purposefully learn and grow. Um, pursue God in these discipleship groups. Allow your friends to encourage you to grow in that. Uh, it's such a, a great time to write and share and 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 hear the Spirit speak to you, to stir your soul a little bit. And it's really important. So I want to encourage you to be part of discipleship groups. Um, uh, I, I was thinking about prayer, Justin, here in between the worship and the sermon. And we don't want to just use prayer as a transition time. That's not what prayer is, right? It's not, oh, now it's transition time. I guess we'll pray. Uh, it is more than that, right? We're, we're, we're giving, offering, um, asking God to be here in our presence. And there is more to this. And a prayer is not just a transition. So if you're using it, prayer as a transition, maybe transition at meals, transition waking up, transition at church, transition Maybe add a little more to it. Like step into it. Let the Spirit speak to you as you're praying. It's really a beautiful moment, a beautiful space to be in. And, and so if you would pray with me now, I would appreciate that. Father, uh, I just count it such a blessing to, uh, to read your word, to share your word to encourage, to stir the hearts of your people, us. And I thank you for the way you've stirred my heart this week and us as your people. I thank you for the way that you're building your church here in North Seattle and that we're building the house together, the, the house of God, the temple of God uh, as, as people, the church, capital C Church and in North Seattle, in Nora and Shoreline and throughout. Lord, thank you for letting us be involved in something much greater than just one building on a corner. I worship you. And I thank you that you open your scripture to us, you open your word to us, and you give us understanding. It's a place of great humility for me personally, and, and so I pray that you would speak out of this vessel and that people would hear not my words and not me, but they would hear you, and that you would be remembered. 
I thank you for the, the, the glorious moment of prayer. that We get to talk to the king of the universe. We get to come before you, not on the outside of the walls or even in the courtyard, but in the, the holy of holies. Boldly coming before you as God, creator of the universe, our mediator, Jesus, saved because of his death, burial, and resurrection that took away our sins and purified us before you. Thank you, Lord, that when you look at us, you see your son. And I praise you that your spirit is within us. Lord, would you open your word this morning, and I just want to praise you for what we get to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, I was uh, reading this message over this morning, and I was so excited about it. It was like, oh, this is really good. So here we go. Ready? It stirred my soul so much as I read through it again and read what God was sharing with me personally. And, and we're going into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's just some really beautiful things that God is, does in the Word as he sets up what he's about to do in the Word in history. So as I often do in the New Testament, when we are going through Ephesians, I would start in the Old Testament. And so we're going to read the book of Ezra, but we're starting in the New Testament. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 4, I encourage you to bring a Bible on Sunday morning if you can. We have the verses up here, of course, and you have Bible apps on your phone, I know. Um, it's something about holding the Word of God in our hand that is very powerful. And obviously, this, we don't worship this book. It is a, a book with text on it, but we worship the God of the text. <laughs> we worship the God who, who gave us this word to understand and learn. So um, if you're not part of a discipleship group that's reading the word, I just please find, find a way to become part of one of those groups. There's a men's um, group coming up here soon as well, uh, the start of March every other Wednesday morning at 630 and so it's going to be the word of God as well. So, but, but listen to this. This is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Uh, and, and if you know Mark chapter 6, is Jesus. He steps into this world. And, and uh, it's Jesus from Nazareth. He goes home to his home city. And everybody looks at him going, no, no, no. You can't be a prophet here. We know who you are. You're just that kid who grew up down the street. And we know your sister and your brother. We know your family. We know Mary and Joseph. You're just the carpenter's son. There's nothing that you can say that we're really going to listen to. And so he goes to Nazareth, and, and he was kind of kicked out. He was kind of rejected in Nazareth as being, being the son of God for sure, but even a prophet. We would look through this chapter and see, see John the Baptist who would be, um, would be executed in this chapter. We would see the disciples be sent out by Jesus, and, and Jesus said, go into the, the highways and the byways and go into the cities and, and start preaching the, the gospel that the Messiah has arrived. And they went, and Jesus gave them power to, to heal people and, and to cast out demons and to share the gospel. And they went, and they came back with a lot of excitement and encouragement. And when they came back, they went right to the hill. Actually, Jesus was trying to get away a little bit into some silence, maybe some, some time off with his disciples, but the people gathered, and there was 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people on this hill as Jesus would teach them and then break bread, and this little lunch of a boy would become the meal for 5, 10, 15,000 people. That ended. 
the disciples walked around. They gathered some baskets of bread and fish, about 12 baskets. And Jesus does this. Listen to this. This is chapter 6, verse 45. This is so wonderful. Immediately after this, after the feeding of the 5,000, verse 44 says, a total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. And while he sent the people home and after telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. He insisted, this, this word insisted is, uh, is he compelled them to go. He stirred them up. He pushed their soul, their, their being, their person. They, he compelled them, get in the boat and go on the lake. And so they did. They got back into the boat, and after telling everyone goodbye, Jesus stayed behind and went up into the hill by himself to pray. And late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. You see this picture? He saw that they were in serious trouble. (laughs) I love that. Jesus saw that the disciples were in serious trouble out on the lake. This wasn't just a tiny lake. You can't really see across it too well. And and so the disciples at night were out in the lake rowing because a storm came up, and they couldn't get anywhere. Matthew and John actually says that they were rowing for three hours, kind of in circles, because the waves were coming from every direction, and they couldn't move. And they were struggling. And Jesus, from the side, he saw them. He didn't probably physically see them. He saw them. If you hear anything this morning, know that Jesus sees you. It wasn't just the disciples he saw and loved. It's, it's the people of God he sees and he loves. And throughout the testimony of the scripture, we see God seeing people. We realize that God sees people. And that line right there in verse 44, he saw that they were in serious trouble. The end, end of story, close the book, and go home. If you're in serious trouble this morning, God sees you. He sees you. He knows you by name. He understands where you're at. He understands the trauma and the difficulty of life, and he sees you. In fact, he sent the disciples into the place of difficulty. Get that word. If you're taking notes this morning, write down the word difficulty. If you're online this morning and you're taking notes, and just write the word down, the word difficulty. It means not easy. All right? Difficulty. Not easy. He sent them into the water. Do we think Jesus is God so he knew what was about to happen to them and he saw them anyway? He sent them into the difficult space to do something in their lives. And I think it was to change their lives. Jesus sees you. And then Jesus engages at just the right time. Just the right time. Often we just think that God doesn't show up. He's slow to answer. He's not available. He doesn't hear me. I must have done something to tick him off. And so he's just not coming through. Well, there's something bigger going on in our lives, 100%. Jesus sees you, and Jesus engages at just the right time time. And I don't even want to say that somehow he shows up at the right time. I'm going to say he engages at the right time to do what he's already planned ahead of time to do. So men and women, you are here uh, this morning, not by accident. If you're watching this this week, today, you're, you're not here by accident. You're, you're here on purpose. God has stirred your soul 
to be here. He woke you up. He, he woke you up. This morning, I'm going to talk about a Hebrew word. All right? And this Hebrew word is, is the word stir. And so I'm going to write it here in my best, um, my, my best. And, and Gadi, you know, it, it's just my best, okay? No judgment. No, no judgment. This is the word uh, stir in Hebrew. Awake. It also means awake. This word is a stirring of the soul, something that the spirit does in our soul. And actually it means to arouse to awakeness, to rouse awake, that we, we are arousing awake, stir. And so there's a, there's, God aroused you awake this morning, woke you up and pushed you and got you here so that you could hear what he needs you to hear for your week. I'm just an avenue of that this morning. And if you're online, I'm an avenue of that for you as well. You are here not by accident. This morning, the Spirit has stirred your heart. And when your spirit is stirred, you can often feel it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're just acting. We're not quite sure. But you know that moment when your soul is stirred up? I have that moment every time I watch The Last of the Mohicans. My favorite movie, right? Hands down. I'll watch that over. And my heart just stirs. I will find you, right? You know, if you've seen the movie, I will find you. It's like that stirring of the soul. Something's happening in the, and, and my soul stirs when I see that movie or, or, or Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge and, and people are searching and hunting and giving their lives for other people. It stirs my soul. We, we feel stirred in, in love and success and elation and empathy and tears and, and these stories that we read and we watch. It stirs us up. Anybody else? Feel that once in a while, right? That stirring. This awakens us up to something new and something beautiful and wonderful in us. Sometimes we don't feel it, yet we still are acting. And so here in the Old Testament, we're going to go to Ezra, but just to the left of Ezra is a book called Second Chronicles. And so if you turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 36, right at the end, Get this, you, you may not have known this, but I'm going to show you it right now. So this is what it says. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. In the first year of King Cyrus, we're going to understand who he is in a second, of Persia, King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord filled the, fulfilled the prophecy that he'd given to Jeremiah, and he, he did what? He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing. Now, there's, there's more to that, but before I read that, the exact same lines, verbiage, everything is in Ezra chapter 1. The exact same. So flip over to Ezra chapter 1, 1. You'll see the, the same words. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled. You can, you can stamp these over top of each other. The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given to Jeremiah, and he did what? He stirred, awakened the heart of Cyrus to put this clock proclamation in writing and just send it throughout his kingdom. And this is what it said. This is the same thing at the end of Second Chronicles. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple, to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you, his people, may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you wherever this Jewish remnant is found 
let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold and supplies for the journey and livestock as well as voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred, he awakened the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribe of Judah. So God stirred the heart of, of, of Cyrus and, and he made this proclamation and it awakened the soul and the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God and all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplying for the journey, livestock, and they gave them many valuable gifts and they, and they list that out. Stirred the soul. You know, sermons in the Old Testament, I try um, to do one thing. So sermons, it's like, it's like a sermon in the Old Testament. There's a lot of leadership principles in this. This is a historical book, so there's a lot of leadership principles in it. But it doesn't seem very profitable on a Sunday morning to preach about leadership principles. We can talk about that. That's okay. Uh, there's a lot of historical things, historical facts and documents that we can talk about, and that's awesome. But I try when I'm preaching Old Testament to always point to Jesus, that the Old Testament is a messianic message pointing to Jesus, and everything in the Old Testament is the epic story of the Messiah coming for us at some point. So this, this is, I mean, without, uh, without the Messiah, the Bible is just another old book. With, it, it's meaningless, all of it. It's historical maybe, but without the Messiah, a real Messiah, it's a meaningless thing. So let's, before we get there, let's do a little bit of history. So uh, the Old Testament is broken up into 39-some books, right? And they're, in, and they're not in chronological order. When you read them, they're not in there's they're in literary order, and so there's different um, literary segments of it. So there's there's uh, and 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 these books were written over the course of well, I mean, it could be about four thousand year span is the history of this, and they're not written in chronological order, but kind of a literary organ of of the law, of history, of of poetry, of the major and the minor prophets. All right, so that's the Old Testament. When we read the New Testament, it's a little more chronological in its order. But the Old Testament, so we have all these, these, these books, and we read through them, and we start hearing names, and we go, huh, I remember that name from this direction or this direction. And we start realizing the books aren't in chronological order, but they're in the order of law, history, poetry, major and minor prophets. And so the um, Ezra, what we're talking about now, Nehemiah and Esther, they are in the, the space of history, kind of at the end of the history that we know in the Old Testament. In fact, they're really the end of the book in a lot of ways. Uh, they're the historical timeline of the end of the book. Many things happening are happening inside of this period. And so there's all kinds of kind of different things happening. In fact, Daniel, Ezekiel, Haggai, Haggai uh, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah, which you'll see all these books, but they're kind of scattered around a little bit. Some of those are, are prophets. Some of those are history. But they're all happening at the same time. So when you're reading, it's, it's a little confusing, right? When you're reading the Bible, you're reading over here and you're reading back here and and you're like, whoa, that was happening back here. Well, it was. The prophets kind of are squeezed into the historical um, documents as well. So um, I'm just going to show you a little bit here. So, so you have the, the, the book of, of Second um, Chronicles, right? And that's what we just read. So Second Chronicles, we just read the end of Second Chronicles. And so what happens then is this 70 years of, uh, of exile. Right? And then we get this book called Ezra. 
And then this book called Nehemiah, which we're going to get to as well, all right? And somewhere in there is a, a little wonderful book called Esther. Probably happens right about there somewhere, all right? That's the, that's the timeline. So in, inside of this, you have inside of the 70 years of exile, you have books like Daniel and um, Ezekiel, right? Those kind of happen inside of that time. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, even though Ezra is probably the author of Second Chronicles, Ezra, is, he shows up about halfway through his book. He actually shows up in Jerusalem. Um, but there's, there's books inside of this like, uh, like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And so those are, those are happening inside of this timeline as well. Um, and, and so this is maybe, maybe 600 B.C. Uh, all the way to about 400. I mean, that's really rough, okay? That's kind of the timeline that we're looking at. We're looking at Ezra, though. Ezra is writing about this, and then he starts Ezra with a little bit of history and understanding the 70 years. We following that? That's good? A little history? Don't want to get too deep because we'll, we'll go down rabbit trails. We can't get out of it. A century earlier, though, a century early, about 700 B.C., prophetic words are being written down about that. About 100 years before this happens, prophetic words are being written down. And they're pretty amazing prophetic words. And so let's, let's look at those. Well, uh, they're long. They're, they're a bit drawn out. But actually, if you go to Isaiah chapter 6, now Isaiah is to the right of Ezra, in our minds, we're thinking, ah, oh, chronological order. Well, actually, Isaiah happens about 100 years before Ezra shows up. Isaiah chapter 6, there's, Isaiah is a prophet, and he, and he says this. He says, uh, um, what did I say? Isaiah 6, 11, yeah. Uh, then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? He replied, this exile will happen until their towns are empty because the children of Israel had rebelled against Isaiah or against God and then the, God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell them hey you're going to be exiled until your towns are empty and your houses are deserted and the whole country is a wasteland until the Lord sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies in desert it lies deserted if even a tenth a remnant survive it will be invaded again and again and burned but as the terebinth or the oak trees, a stump, um, or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. And so Isaiah, long time before this happens, starts saying, you know what? Turn back to God. Turn back to God, or your town is going to be completely wasted. And we find out that it was. A guy named Nebuchadnezzar shows up. Well, another passage is Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah. Um, a little farther to the right in your Bible, uh, he shows up. It's not about 100 years. It's probably more like 40 years uh, before this. And in Jeremiah 25, we're not going to read it all because it's really long, but, but it says right at the beginning, it says, this message is for the people of Judah that came to J Jeremiah from the Lord during the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign over Judah. This was the year when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon began his reign. And so I, I just point that out because the kingdom, the Israelites were, were divided. 
The Israelites were divided between Judah and Israel. And they were a, a divided kingdom that, that God didn't want a divided kingdom. He wanted one people, one group. And so this divided kingdom was warring against itself, hated each other, and had bad, bad kings. Kings that were terrible. Kings that would, would uh, worship the, the other gods of the pagan world, would not worship the the God of, of Israel, and things were just bad. In the temple and out of the temple, the priests were horrible. Everything was bad, and along comes an empire called Babylon, the Babylonian Empire with a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar would trounce the Israelites. He'd come in somewhere around right here, and he'd start knocking over the temple. He'd burn everything. He'd He'd kill, he'd maim, he'd rape and, and, and drag away into prison and in, into slavery and took the people from the land and drug them away because they were continually disobeying God. Nebuchadnezzar would show up. Actually, the text, there's a lot about Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible because he, come to find out, as a pagan, God was doing what God wanted him to do. God used a pagan man. These um, years then, and in, in the, the 70 years of isolation, is where we get these famous passages that we've used many times, Jeremiah 29. That says, this is what the Lord, in verse 4, the Lord God, the, the God of Israel, says to all the captives, he has exiled to Babylon. Exiled to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar did this. He says, build homes and stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, and then find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. The work of, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord God says, right? And so God used Nebuchadnezzar to kick the Israelites into 70 years of exile, and then God says, stop hanging your heads. Thrive in exile thrive in exile. God uses the difficulties of life to do something amazing. And, and this happened so that other things could be ushered in, like Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes, and then a little guy, a little character named Alexander the Great. And so the, the kingdoms would expand. Nebuchadnezzar's little kingdom of Babylon was huge, but then the Persian Empire came in, and, and Cyrus wiped them out, and the Persian Empire was larger. And then Xerxes' empire and Artaxerxes' empires were bigger and bigger, and then the Roman Empire came wandering into the land and took all of them over and added to their empire, taking over the entire Middle East and Europe and everything, right? Up into Britain and across the, the north of Africa. And Alexander the Great would be the start of that in around, around 350 B.C. So history is super important because we're seeing what God is doing inside of this. He's stirring people's hearts inside of this, and it's really exciting. So they're exiled, and then God stirs the pot. Cyrus, the Persian Empire, waltzes in, takes over Babylon, uh, deposes Nebuchadnezzar, and then in this stirring of the heart, there's a a wake-up call to the children of Israel. In fact, David, the second king of Israel, would write in the book of Psalms a couple of things. So I have a couple of Psalms for you. This is the same word we're using to wake up. Psalm 57, verse 7, says this, my heart uh, seven and eight. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. 
No wonder I can sing your praises. Listen, confidence in God allows us to sing praises of God. And then it says, wake up, my heart. Wake up, O lyre and harp. A harp is big. A lyre is something you hold in your arms. Wake up. I will wake the dawn with my song. I love that. We often refer to aurora. Aurora means the dawn. And I love this idea of waking the dawn with our song. Wake up. Wake up. Well, he continues to write King David and others in chapter uh, 108, verse 1. My heart is confident in you, O God. No wonder I can sing your praises. When you are confident in God, you can sing the praises of God. Wake up, liar in heart. I will wake the dawn with my song. Throughout the scriptures, we see the Lord God stirring people's heart and waking them up, shaking them. Ephesians, a while back I said everything points to Ephesians. It does. I mean, it goes back to Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, remember, it says this, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise up from the dead, and the Lord will give you light. When our souls are stirred, we like wake up and we start seeing. We understand. We, we wake up from our stupor. We take off the blindfolds from our eyes. And we start realizing and seeing what God is about to do or is doing in our lives. Lord, I pray, stir my soul, stir our soul, stir the spirit, the soul of Seattle, of the church, your people in Seattle. May it not have to come from people who don't know you. But God, if you're stirring the souls of the leaders of this city, even though they don't call on you, do that. Stir the soul of us. Lord, stir my soul. Awake me. Show me something. Wake me up. Something radically changes when you wake up. Something radically changes when you wake up with your hands out saying, yes, God, my hands open to the Lord. Something radically changes. Stir my heart, O Lord, for the things you want my hands to accomplish. Something radically changes when you wake up with your hands open to the Lord. Stir my heart. Stir my heart for the things you want my hands to accomplish and the people you want me to love. May I not lose heart or, learn, or, uh, or, or fear the waves of my life. May the danger of the world not stop our resolve to see your glory in Seattle. The disciples out on the lake were terrified. The waves were coming. They were rowing against the lake. They, they didn't know what to do. They were afraid, 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 and Jesus saw them. He saw them. They were rowing against the waves. Sometimes we just need to row a little more. Sometimes our soul, our being needs to push against the oars. We need to do some more. We need to take glory and joy in the danger and the moments that God's given to us. Every moment matters, right? Every moment we have, and sometimes we just don't realize that our moments matter. Every step we take matters. Difficult or easy, it matters someplace in the line. And I would, I would surmise that our difficult seems easy to others. Our easy seems difficult to others. And so in our space, we need to realize that every moment that we have in our lives matter. And we got to allow the Spirit of God to stir us, to wake us up from our slumber as we're looking at the life with blindfolds on and not realizing what God is doing. It's something epic. It's something bigger than we can imagine. We need to start swinging, told Christine a month ago. 
I'm going to start swinging. What I mean by that, you hit none of the balls that are thrown to you if you don't swing. You'll never hit one. I'm going to start swinging or, or decide when to swing, you know, that thing that I'm going to decide when to swing. I'm just going to start swinging. I'm not a baseball person. This is probably the wrong way to do it. Maybe it's golf. But I'm going to start swinging. I'm going to allow, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to allow God to decide which of the balls <laughs> that are going to connect and going to be a home run. I'm going to start swinging. And what I mean by that is not foolishness. Not foolishness. I mean, in God's spirit, as he's waking and stirring me, I'm going to start doing the things that he's stirring me to do and just letting him decide when the home run happens, if that's even a thing. Start swinging so God can connect the home runs. You know, if we never swing, there are no home runs. We're sitting back and we're wondering and whining about why God isn't showing up. There is a lot of life behind Ezra and Nehemiah. Do you understand what's going on here, the pain and difficulty of exile? Anybody? <laughs> Exile. There's a lot of pain in this. Pretty much none of us have been dragged out of our homes, put in chains, had our mom and dad killed, drugged behind a chariot, and into a foreign land that we have no idea what the language is or how we're going to live or how we're going to survive. Right? <laughs> Not that far. Some of us have that idea. One of the reasons my soul stirs for the last of the Mohicans is I have a, a stirring in my heart for the indigenous people of America because of a lot of that stuff. The fear, the trauma, the indignation, the difficulty, the life in this. And so here are these people, and we, we read 70 years of exile, and we don't really comprehend what's happening here. These people are in a foreign land, in a place where they don't know the language. They've just had their, their temple, their Jerusalem, their city, everything demolished and destroyed, ransacked, and only the very, very poor were left behind. Everybody else out of the country and into Babylon. And here they are in a foreign city, not to, not to sit there and drink tea on the river, but to work and work and work and slave labor. And they, generations, 70 years, I think people lived 70 years back then, generations would die, would fall. Some people would, and we'll see that later on in Ezra chapter 2 and 3, but, but most people would die inside of that from hard labor, from slavery, slavery upon slavery. This is an exile. The black Americans in the early America and around the world, right, around the world would feel exiled from their home continent, around the world. Here it is, this space of exile, that often we have no idea, even those over here that have gone, who have been born and grown up outside of exile, have no idea what was happening in here and the difficulties in here. And we start thinking about this, and that's why I think about my father and the difficulty of his early life and the blessing of the life that I have because of the choices that he made, the choices of taking joy in the exile, joy in the difficulty. Wow, can you really take joy in the difficulty? Yeah, but you don't know, you don't know the depth of pain that I have. 
the depth of pain that my family has, the depth of pain of my exile, you don't know that. How can you say take joy? I'm not saying take joy. Actually, the word of God just says take joy in your trials. Take joy in your exile. And I'm praying, Lord God, in this difficulty, stir our soul into action. Philippians 2 says, for God is working in you to accomplish what he has before you. Stir our souls, awaken us into something. So King Cyrus knew he was being used by the Lord God, the heavens of uh, the the Lord God of the heavens. He knew that, and and God stirred his soul, and he stirred the souls of the people. Kings, though, kings come and go. They're just people. Presidents come and go faster than we can even think. My dad said in the last cycles of of chaos and politics, he's like, eh, I've seen worse. He's 82. I'm like, he's like, people have come and gone. I think back to the first president I can remember is like the tail end of Jimmy Carter. All I know about him is peanuts or something like that. I have no idea. So, so then Reagan and then these years of presidents. And I'm, I'm like, and, but there's 100, 200 years of presidents coming and going. And people getting all crazy about it because the world is falling apart. Well, guess what? Kings come and go. God stays consistent. And that is what happens inside of this. God is saying, I have a plan. And history and mankind and people coming and go, I'm just going to use them to accomplish my plan because this had to happen. So this would happen 400 years later, the Messiah would arrive on the earth. Without this happening and all of this, the Messiah would have arrived in a little tiny town and there wouldn't be any Roman roads to connect the world for the disciples later on. There wouldn't be any Jerusalem. And so we're going to see here in Ezra, they came back to build the temple. The temple that a little boy named Jesus would enter and teach the priests. The temple that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and look at the walls that are going to be built in Nehemiah and look at the walls of Jerusalem and the disciples would say, wow, the magnificent temple, the magnificent walls. And Jesus would say, yeah, 70 years they'll be gone. The temple and the the city that Jesus would crest the hill on Passion Week and weep over the city of Jerusalem saying, if you only knew what was about to take place. If you only could see What's happening here? Kings come and gone, come and go, but God continues. He uses whom he will for his will, for his greater purposes. So there's an exile, but there's a Jesus. And there's a lot of trauma inside of that. And somewhere along the end of Nehemiah, when the last stroke of the pen happens in the Old Testament, there's 400 years of silence. And we know very little about that. There's some extra biblical writings, of course. God uses pagan kings to fulfill his promises. His promises a long time ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the people of Israel. He uses pagan kings to, uh, to accomplish those promises. Even the people, the people, his people, who broke the covenant, he was still faithful to the timing of the Messiah's birth. Even though those people continued to break the covenant, he was still faithful to the Messiah's birth. For his covenanted promises, it was so beautiful. So this kingdom now is divided, and what happened here is super important because the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, divided kings, it was the same kingdom up until the end of King Solomon. And after King Solomon, his sons and others kind of went crazy, and they divided the kingdom up into Judah, Judah and Benjamin and the rest of Israel, and 
and it was a divided kingdom. It's two lines. And God's like, no, I'm one, one people, one people. And this brought them all back together. <laughs> the enemy kings brought all of them out, and this brought them all back together to be one people again before God. But the difficulty in it all, the difficulty made all the difference. Story after story in biblical text and historical prose, we, we recognize and realize the blessing of difficulty, of pain, sorrow, and hardship. All of you know, you can tell the story of the difficulty of your own life and how God has strengthened you or how you have not allowed him to strengthen you. There's pain, there's sorrow, there's hardship, there's what we feel like is exile in our lives, yet God is doing something in us that is powerful and effective. Yes, it is true, life is hard. We know, all of us know, we all know life is hard. And there's bad things that happen to us, and there's, there's wicked people who happen to us. Life is difficult. Israel, they were exiled, they were slaves, they in their returning and their building and they're, they're trying to do what they feel like God's calling them to do, there's still enemies coming at them. So they were, they were stacking bricks with one hand and holding a sword with the other hand because the enemy kept coming against them. Their, theirs was a difficult time and then a difficult time of 400 years of silence. We can't even imagine 400 years because it's, it's twice the life of American soil, right? That's how Americans kind of deem time. <laughs> Hardship after hardship after hardship. In all areas of life, difficulty strengthens and brings fulfillment if we allow it to. Difficult. It is in difficulty that fulfillment and joy is born out of. If we allow it. So take joy in your difficulty, in your difficult season. There's a, a word. Christine and I have words for our year, and, and her, her word, I've told you my word is remarkable. Her word is resilience. Resilience. Resilience talks about difficulty. It talks about uh, resilience is this idea of, of rebounding. Not rebounding a little ways because physics has taken over and gravity is pulling you back down. You only go. It's rebounding fully and exceeding it. Rebounding back. And so resilience is this beautiful thing. It says that hard things are going to happen. You're going to get stomped down. The, the rug's going to be pulled out from under your feet. You're going to miss a few swings or maybe most of them. But at some point, resilience says you connect. Resilience is all over the Bible. The Bible is about faith. I've, as, I'm t as I'm thinking about this, I was thinking about tithing for some reason. And I was thinking about the 10% tithing idea in the Bible. And, you know, I don't talk about money much, but I probably should more often. And if you don't like money talks at church, you know, get over it. Uh, how do you think we do this? I mean, we, we, we do this thing in Pilgrim and Fort North Seattle and the food bank and, and this on this property and down the street and neighbors and mailings and, and care for people and love on people and do free coffee at the bus stop. How do you think we do it without somebody tithing? I mean, the money doesn't just magically show up downstairs. And so, so God has allowed us to tithe. And throughout the Bible, we see this concept of tithe, this 10% thing. And often we think, it, oh, God just wants 10% because he wants to test us again. Or God wants 10% because he wants, he's like a wimpy old God. He's like, I wonder if they really love me. Hopefully they love me. Maybe if they give me 10%, I'll know that they love me. God is not like that. He doesn't need our freaking money, our, our money. He doesn't need it, right? 
It's just, it's just stuff for him. There's something more going on in this 10% realization. And if we don't give 10%, we think, well, the Bible never says anything about 10%. It just says give out. Well, actually, that means more than 10%, okay? I'm just saying. The Bible actually, in the Old Testament, talks about 10%, and probably in the tithes from the children of Israel, is about 52% or something like that. So, so don't tell me that the New Testament doesn't say 10%. It actually says give everything. So there's a different thing. And so what's God doing? Is he saying, hey, Keith, Christine, and you're giving it the 10%, is it because I need money up in heaven? No, it's not that really. It's something more is going on there. It's, it's saying, because every time, I don't know about you, every time I, I write that check or see it's taken out of my bank, I'm going, whoo, that could have done this in my life, right? <laughs> I know it. And so maybe God is saying, hey, listen, 10% is actually going to hurt a little bit, and it will forcefully make your life difficult. It's like a forceful exile. It's, it's going to make you difficult so that you stop relying on the money that is right now. It seems pretty worthless and everything's going crazy and we're going to be using this Bitcoin that doesn't even exist, right? And so, but we rely on it so much and it's everything. And maybe God's saying, hey guys, listen, I'm going to forcefully, I'm going to encourage you to, to, to decide to go into exile with your money so that you're depending on me. And he's saying, wake up. I want to stir your heart a little bit. Worship God, not money, not stuff, not things, not houses, not cars, blah, 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 blah. I give because it strengthens me. <laughs> and worship is an act of worship. Our act of worship, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, this act of worship, yes, there is something bigger with the Messiah at some point with, with the blood sacrifice, but the act of worship of giving our resources, our time, our talent, our what, what these guys do up on top with the, the, the cameras and slides and, and everything, it allows us to worship. This is an act of service. The kids' ministry downstairs, the, the, the food bank and, and people who are volunteering and working in that, this is an act of service. Of it's, it's giving something that is beyond what I really want to give, perhaps. <clears throat> I give because it strengthens me to rely on him purposefully making it difficult, not easy. So the question, and, and okay, that was about money, but it was about everything, wasn't it? It was really about everything in our lives. What am I going to hold on to that keeps me in this quasi-junky foundation of nothing? Nothing. <laughs> we discover it's nothing. The only foundation is Jesus. It gives us a, a foundation that regardless of the difficulty, the not easy of life, we're still standing. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? Are you in a difficult place this morning? Is it a difficult place? A not easy place? You have two options. In my thoughts, you have two options. You can complain about it and join the rest of people who are complaining. Or the Saras, the antonym is accept it. And I'm not saying accept it like some, like, woe is me, I'm just going to accept this. Like, accept it. Like, like, agree with it, what God is doing in your soul. Agree with it. Or approve it. God, thank you for giving me this time of exile so I can be strengthened and come back and rebuild together with you. I can consent to it. 
God, with open hands, I consent to the difficulty in my life. Maybe it's for your purposes. Maybe it's just life. I'm not going to, I commit not to complain. I'm going to build into this. I'm going to plant gardens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down. I am going to consent to this. In fact, in this, I'm going to praise. In this exile, this difficulty, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you louder. It's going to be more beautiful. Whenever I see Justin up here worshiping like this morning, I love that. You know, we have a worship pastor that we pay. And uh, because of 10%, because of that, right? It's not easy being a pastor in the city of Seattle, right? There's better ways to make money, all right? I'm going to consent. I'm going to praise. I'm going to take delight in this, God. How many of you, when you come to a difficult, not easy spot, do you go, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. Yes. How would it change us, right? How would it, what would it, what would change in us if we go, yes, yes, difficult times, I'm getting stronger. Woo-hoo. Leave that up there. <laughs> Leave that up there, please. Thank you. Endorse it. What if I'm endorsing it? I'm not just delighting in it and celebrating. I'm like, God, please give me something difficult to grow me. Anybody? <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe I'm at the gym once a week. <laughs> but I'm going to endorse it. In fact, God, when it happens and people go, oh, you poor person. I'm going to, no, 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 no. This is God doing something in my life. This is God doing something in our life as a church. Yeah, we lost 65% of our church last year. But thank you, Lord. I'm going to endorse it. I'm going to say, this is good. In fact, I'm going to surrender into it. I'm going to fall back into God's hands because he's going to catch me. He always does. He is the Messiah who sees us. He sees us in our difficulty. Resilience is the working out of our faith in the midst of difficulty. A stirred up, an awakening surrender. A remarkable resilience. Let's go back to Mark chapter 4, 6. Woo! Oh, listen to this. Can you believe this? It's hard to. Verse 47 in Mark chapter 6, late that night the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake. And Jesus was alone on the land and he saw that they were in serious trouble. Rowing hard, struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them. Have you ever been struggling against waves? And it's, it is forever. Your, your arms are tired. You're winded. You cannot keep going. I can't keep going at this, God. It is so long. It is so long. I'm really sorry, Justin. Um, it is so long, all right? We're on the waves, and we're struggling, and we're struggling, and we're struggling, and we're pulling the oars, and we're pulling the oars. We're like, God, you sent us here. You put us here. I'm doing this because of you. Where are you? Jesus is on the shore and lets it continue. 
because there's something better. The disciples are about to change the world. They're about to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus across the world and share the love of Christ in such a ridiculous and remarkable and beautiful way. He's strengthening them for being tortured to death, for being hung up on a cross upside down. He's strengthening them to have faith that is inexhaustible. He's strengthening them, strengthening them. They're struggling and rowing against the waves. About 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them. He was walking on the water. And he intended to go past them. But when he saw them walk, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. So here's what I'm thinking. They were all terrified when they saw him. Why was Jesus planning on going past them? Jesus was like, this is my thing. Jesus is like, you guys got this. You got this. You're going to see me. And just seeing me walking on the water is going to strengthen you. It's going to strengthen your resolve, and you're going to you're going to catch this. It's going to stir you up, and there's going to be awakening in your soul. It's like, oh, Jesus knows we're here. It's okay. This is okay. They were terrified. They were they couldn't figure it out. So Jesus stopped. <laughs> Thank you. Jesus spoke to them at once, and he said, "Don't be afraid." He said, "Take courage." For I am here. This is also the story that G- that Peter walks on the water and he steps out to the water. There's a whole story in that too, but Mark just tells it this way. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. I just want to tell you, church, don't be afraid. Take courage. Jesus is here. He climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. And they were totally amazed. Actually, the words are, they were absolutely terrified with amazement. They were scared with the wind. Now they were like, who is this? They still didn't quite understand everything. And they crossed the lake. I'm sorry. You know, God is so amazing. And we keep forgetting. We keep living our life. We keep forgetting. We wake up in the morning. We're doing it again. We're going, God, how am I going to get out of this situation? God, how horrible this is. Oh, my life is so horrible. We, we keep forgetting the strengthening of our soul that God is going through. It's so beautiful, so remarkable, so remarkable. There is a shore and a calm sea on the other side of this. It might be in eternity. It might be here on earth. There is a calm sea on the other side of this. And it's going to be hard. Difficult, not easy. But may God stir your soul to strengthen your faith. Have a remarkable resilience this year. Father God, I worship you. I pray that I did not break that guitar. Uh, God, you're so good. And I thank you for being able to handle our our passion, our hope, our, our discouragement, our struggle our sadness, our depression, our hopelessness, our our spaces, Lord. Thank you that you can handle that. God, I, I am amazed at that. Thank you that you see us from a long way out, 
just like you saw the children of Israel. You saw them from a long ways out, 70 years of exile. You came and did something in their midst and would build their temple, and you did something amazing and beautiful. Praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would, we would hear that in our own soul and that you would stir us, Lord Jesus, to realize that you are doing something in our life. We would not look at our, around at our difficulties and, and curse you. Lord, we'd look around in our difficulties and thank you that it would change us. Lord, may we wake up every morning awake with our hands open to you, asking you, for more. You're an amazing God. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has never stepped into a relationship with you, dancing on the edge, wondering, asking questions, dancing on the edge, I pray that we would step into a relationship with the God, the creator of the universe, the Messiah that you guaranteed would come. Lord, as we worship with this last song, the first three songs were right on target, so good, so wonderful, and the resonance of it was stirring in our soul for something more. And I just pray, Lord, as we continue to worship here this morning, that you would give us a resolve to turn to you, and that we would do according to how you're calling us to do. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen.